It's a bird. It's a plane. It's this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. Thanks so much for joining me this week. Episode 537, I talk with Rand Fishkin about his book, Lost and Founder, about his current effort, Spark Toro, talk a little bit about his time at Moz last couple years, how things went there. And we talk about funding, we talk about growth levers that are working today, all types of stuff. Rand Fishkin probably needs no introduction. I do give him a little bit of an intro at the start of the interview, but I always love interviews with Rand because he just brings the authenticity. He's super transparent and he just says what he feels and I've always respected him for that. Before we dive into that, the 2021 State of Independent SaaS report is out. You can head to stateofindiesass.com or just head to microconf.com and there's a report link up in the header. The report turned out really good this year, 60 something pages. We trimmed it down a little bit. We added some different graphics, lots of cool findings. Uh, people have been talking about it on Twitter and we did a live stream a couple weeks ago. You can actually find that on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash microconf. As the kids say these days, smash that like and subscribe button if you're not already subscribed to our YouTube channel because we do have videos coming out uh, probably twice a month right now. And more will be coming out, of course, once we're able to do in-person events again and are able to add new talks to the coffers. So again, stateofindiesass.com if you want to check out the report and youtube.com slash microconf. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Rand Fishkin. Rand Fishkin, thanks so much for joining me today. Rob, great to be here. Oh, it's good. This is your first time on Startups for the Rest of Us. I think that's right. Yeah, that's super cool. I know that you were on Microconf on air and then you've been on Zen Founder many times, uh, which is, you know, obviously the podcast that my wife Sherry runs, but it's great to have you on here and frankly, way overdue. The fact that it's 530 episodes or something you haven't been on feels, just, I'm not sure how we, how we let that happen. So I know a lot of folks who are listening to this will know who you are as the co-founder of Moz and Inbound.org. You left Moz a couple years back and you started SparkToro with your other co-founder. And you've written a book called Lost and Founder. And I love the tagline of this book. I got to find it. A painfully honest field guide to the startup world. I listened to that book when it came out on Audible. And I hear people recommending it. There, were, there was someone completely out of my startup circles the other day. And they brought up your book to me. Hey, oh, you do startups. Have you heard of Rand Fishkin? And I was like, actually, I have. Yeah, it was super cool. For folks who don't know, I mean, you have a, a massive Twitter following, I believe, 450,000 or more at this point. You wrote this book through Penguin Random House. Has the book kind of changed, I don't know, maybe changed your profile or do you feel like the book was more of a, a venting process for yourself to get your message out to the world? Or do you feel like it has actually brought in a new audience perhaps of folks who may not have heard of you prior? Let's see, I think that it had the potential to bring a new audience, but my experience has been so lost and founder for reference penguin random house big publisher one of the one of the big four now after they merged they tend to want bestsellers it's it's not unlike a venture capital model where either you're a really big success or you're kind of not that big a deal to them and lost and founder i think they hoped might be that and ended up not being that. It did not end up being like a New York Times bestseller, all that kind of stuff. It's had slow, steady sales. I think it's sold around maybe 25, 30,000 copies, which is decent for a business book, but not runaway success. And I don't think that it's had a huge impact on my profile. If someone said like, hey, I really want to raise my profile and my credibility and get invited to more conferences or I don't know, whatever the metric for someone is, would you recommend a process like what you did with Austin Founder? And I think my answer would probably be no, that instead you could you could do that more effectively through online channels today than through books. I think books are sort of a prestige and if you have a bestseller, potentially, you know, very big audience builders. But that's difficult to do with a non-single subject book. So Lost and Founder is kind of a, here's a journey with a bunch of lessons, warts and all, look at what, what it's like building a venture-backed startup, especially the ones that aren't unicorns. And I think that's been helpful to a ton of people, and I've gotten a lot of kind messages from folks, but they were almost all people I already had some connection to. Fascinating. I, I like the fact that you pointed out it's this perhaps a single subject thing that's impacting it. I also think you're, you're 
far along in your career and sense of notoriety, you know, having the following already. I mean, obviously it's always possible to get bigger, but it's not like you were an unknown that then sold 25,000 copies. That's something because I've written a couple books now and my first one I self-published and it sold probably half of what Lost and Founder has, somewhere in like, let's say 12,000, 13,000 copies, but it was in 2009. And it's when I had, I don't even know if I was on Twitter yet, or I had a hundred Twitter followers, you know, and I didn't have speaking invitations. And really, I wasn't a name in the scene yet. That book did break me in. But I think a big part of that is because it was so focused. It's really focused on going from zero to a five or $10,000 a month software product. Yeah. And I, I think that there are numerous reasons to get a book published. One of the best reasons, I think, is a desire to have people get a full reckoning and understanding of a deep, complex topic. And even if you only sell a 1,000 or 5,000 copies, if they're to the right people on that subject, you can really make a big difference in those people's lives and in their understanding of the topic and in a subject matter area, especially a niche one. So I don't want to discourage people from writing books. I think they're still a great medium. But I will say I am not, I never enjoyed the single subject business books, the ones that you could basically, you could read the Wikipedia (laughs) um, summary of the book and then read the whole book and go, okay, I got more of the same concept, but I guess, you know, there's these four keys to being a good manager that this person thinks there are. And and we went really in depth on them, but honestly, I, I could do with the summary article. Oh, that makes sense. And that's that's even a little different than what my book is. My book is kind of a, it's like the step-by-step process of idea validation and all that. So it isn't, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about like the start with why or the... Yeah, all the business meme books, right? The ones that you see on the shelves behind all the people on TV. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So when you grew Moz, seven years as CEO, from seven employees to 134 employees, revenue from 800K to just under $30 million, traffic from one to 30 million annual visitors. And I'm reading all this off your bio, by the way. People should check this out. If if you're listening to this and you go on podcasts, you do any type of, of speaking, check out sparktour.com slash team slash Rand, or just go to Google and type in Rand bio. I've seen bios like this before, but I really like yours because you have a abbreviated one at the top with a couple photos and you have a really long bio that I was reading through. And it's like, I feel like I know you pretty well. I followed your story. I've read your book and I was learning stuff. And so this is, this is good. And I know we're not doing a lot of public speaking right now, but um, you have some really good, I don't know, just data points if, if someone did want you to speak. So I think folks can you know, do well to perhaps model themselves after this. Did you model this page after someone else or did you just kind of think through, ah, this is you know, what's logical and what should be here? Yeah, so basically during my, I would say, you know, last 10 years at Moz, I was at the company that became Moz and, you know, with my mom sort of founding it since 2001. So for what, 17 years. And for those, those last 10, you know, my profile was bigger and I was getting invited to a lot of events. And so I just, my assistant and I, Nikki, who is not with me anymore, but we just recorded everything that everyone ever asked us for and then used, (laughs) used that to create the bio, right? So they were like, you know, some people wanted these kinds of photos. Some people wanted those kinds of photos. Some people wanted them in this resolution. Some people wanted this description, the longer description. Well, they really want the full bio. Well, they want to see, you know, some examples of your talks. So we just put it all together into a page. And (laughs) that's how, that's how that was built. And so during this time at, at Moz, you've been very public, you know, you raised quite a bit of funding and, that leads to issues. You go into it in in Lost and Founder. You stepped down as CEO in 2014 during a bout of depression. And then you left the company four years later. I'm struck by that, that you stepped down as CEO of your company and then worked there for four more years. I don't know that I've heard someone do that before. And I'm, I guess I'm curious first, like why stick around and why didn't you, you know, perhaps just want to distance yourself. And the second one is, was that awkward? Was that a tough four years to not be running your own company anymore, but working there? Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. So I think there were three big reasons that I stayed. Those three were one, I thought, you know, for the prior whatever, 14 years before I stepped down that Moz would kind of be my forever company, right? That I I would grow it and we would go public or sell. And I, you know, Moz would be like the one thing that I did. And then I would do, I don't know, investing and philanthropy and blah, blah, blah after. So I I think part of that is like my own mental conception of who I was and what I was going to do. 
And then the second, the second big reason was when I stepped down, you know, I talked to my chief operating officer, Sarah Bird, who'd been with me for a number of years about taking the CEO role. And I, you know, promised her like, Hey, I'm going to stay on, I'm going to be around to help you. You know, she's a non-technical person and had been, you know, with the company and, and doing a great job in the COO role. But I think felt, yeah, maybe a little less than fully confident about everything, you know, taking on the uh, CEO job, which is, which is natural. I think that's a good sign, actually, if someone's super confident, maybe they have some <laughs> uh, ego issues that you don't necessarily want in a CEO role. And so that, you know, that commitment was important to me. And then the third one was that my board really wanted me to stay on, you know, they felt that because the personal brand of of me had been deeply connected to the company brand of Moz for so long that it would be a hit to the company if I were to leave fully. And so all those reasons, I think were were ones why I stayed. However, in retrospect, I would have left after a year. And I should have. Hmm. Why? Because it did get very awkward because there were significant conflicts between Sarah and I. You know, for folks for folks who might follow me closely, I, I wrote recently about stepping down from Moz's board. I was the chairman of the board of directors for, you know, since the company was founded. And I left that role, promoted some other folks onto the board and just deep awkwardness, lots of conflict disagreement. I think it was unhealthy for the company. You know, I felt like I was staying and trying to impose whatever benefits that I could to like keep it afloat, even though I disagreed with all sorts of things. After I stepped down as CEO, the growth rate sank significantly. It was trending a little bit down like the last six months I was there. So I wouldn't put the the fault entirely on folks after I, I left. But, you know, the last, oh my gosh, the last seven years, certainly look nothing like the first seven. Yeah, which is which is really, really tough in a venture capital backed business. You know, the awkwardness of like, you know, if you and I are private investors and we own whatever, 20, 30% of a company that's $50 million a year and growing 10% year over year and profitable, we're happy, right? That's great. That's fine. But if we are venture investors who basically need you know, 98 of the companies we invest in to die and go away so that they stop wasting our board time and two of the companies to be unicorns and make all our money, those like stuck in the middle, maybe it'll make us, you know, a few tens of millions of dollars, maybe it'll someday go bankrupt, who knows, like they're really annoying, that they're just pests. And yeah, and you could kind of feel it with with Moz and the dynamics and that situation. So it's, it's weird. It's weird to have people, you know, people email me. I got an email last week that was like, hey, will you invest in this fund? Will you invest in this company? And I have to be like, uh, yeah, so I don't really have liquid capital. Yeah, that's something I don't think people realize is on that on paper wealth of a founder that might be 10, 20, 30 million dollars. But if it's in a company, an illiquid private company, in, in essence, there's you just can't get it out, right? Until there's an exit or an IPO. Right. And, you know, when when a company is venture backed and growing at rates that are not sort of venture acceptable, what what happens? Right. That's a very, very weird situation. And I, more companies get stuck in that than you'd think. Right. Out of those, you know, average hundred investments that VCs make, the stuck in the middle is a really significant percentage is probably like 20 of those hundred. And a lot of those end up being some combination of like fire sales or for more aggressive venture investors, it's often like a fire the CEO and bring someone else in or try and recapitalize the whole thing, combine it with another portfolio company. I've seen that a bunch of times. A lot of strange and awkward things that can lead to, you know, for a founder, for a founding team, for customers and, and employees, just a bad situation. Yeah, I know a few folks who have made it a habit of buying failed, quote unquote, venture funded companies where they're and failed is we're talking a $50 million run rate, you know, company, but 10, 20, 30 million in ARR and startups.com is one, right? Will, Will Schroeder, I believe his name is, I interviewed him on, on the podcast, I don't know, six months ago. And he has purchased, I'm not going to say all of these were failed, but he just, the previously venture backed companies, he purchased Clarity.fm, which was Dan Martell's, Zirtual, 
which was did did crash and burn. It was a, a VA service. And there's at least one other where he basically said, yeah, I, I'm kind of the second buyer, you know, and they've already proven enough of the model. I mean, I think that, you know, look, Moz is a fantastic company in a terrific field with incredible opportunity. And it's frustrating to me that sort of the that opportunity hasn't been as executed on as it could be. And at the same time, I also have a lot of criticism of the model itself, right? It it should be just fine to be a profitable, growing tens of millions of dollar a year revenue company that's doing a great job of serving customers and making a lot of people happy. That should be good enough. And the fact that, you know, I, I feel very responsible for having basically signed these venture deals that said that will never be good enough. Yeah. And that's why when you went to start your next company, you, you left Moz 2018. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So let's see, three years ago in a month and a half. And you went, you wanted to start your next company, Spark Toro, and you started that with a completely different model. I know from the start, I believe that's actually when I reached out to you is you wrote a blog post and said, I'm starting my next company and I'm not raising venture capital. And I remember thinking, I wonder if he's raising angel, angel funding, because for, you know, for those listening who don't know, like venture capital is, is one track. And if you take institutional money from VCs, they do want that unicorn, the billion dollar valuations, but there are investors out there Folks like myself, Accelerator like Tiny Seed, we'll talk about that in a second. There are investors out there who are willing to write checks. You know, maybe we raise $250,000, $500,000 in a round. I believe, so I've personally angel invested in, I think it's maybe 13 to 14 companies. And more than half of those are just this. They are B2B SaaS companies that will probably never be unicorns, but they will be amazingly profitable, real businesses that have the potential to do five to $50 million in, in annual revenue. And that's what you started with SparkToro, right? That was more of your goal this time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the really interesting thing about this whole structure, Rob, right, is, is when you step back from the micro level and you look at the macro level, it comes into stark relief, like, why does the venture capital industry exist? How do they exist? How do they really make money? And, and you know, the, the answer is we, we can get into it or not, but the answer is it was created as a tax dodge and that is how it exists today, right? Venture capital is essentially an asset class that only makes money because rich people in the 60s and 70s lobbied the federal government to get capital gains tax rate applied to this certain type of investing, right? That if you held, I think you have to hold it for five years or whatever, but you know, you hold your early stage investment. And so the asset class evolved to work in this, this fashion and way. And now it's become sort of a, almost a cultural belief in Silicon Valley culture that you have to go the unicorn model. And then of course, when you, when you look at what unicorns do, it's essentially exacerbate income inequality to the max. Right? Like the whole idea behind venture capital is we are going to take a bunch of mostly already wealthy people because that's who starts venture backed startups, right? The overwhelming majority, I think something like 90% come from family wealth. So you're taking already wealthy individuals who started companies and you are saying one or two out of a hundred of you will make a lot of money. Everyone else, you're out of luck. And then most of the gains will go to a very small number of people in those organizations, right? So it's just a <laughs> super messed up, right? Like if you were to ask, ask an economist, hey, is this a good thing for a society? They would tell you, no, that is a terrible idea. Whatever you do, don't make that the primary incentive structure of how investing should be done. What you really want to have a healthy economy is lots of small and medium-sized businesses because they can better weather storms and they have less, you know, sort of nasty political influence and they will create more income equality and so you'll have a more equal society and you'll have more competition, which is good for innovation and marketplaces, blah, 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 right? And instead, what did America do? Venture capital. Yeah, it's unfortunate the model has, has turned into what it is. But I think that's good, the good news for those funds and those individuals and those investors that are coming out of the woodwork and saying, look, we don't need that to be the case, right? And I love what you did. I mean, I like we liked what you did so much with your SparkToro terms, which you published on the internet and open source, that that is what TinySeed wound up adopting as our investment terms. When you folks reached out and said, like, hey, we would like to use SparkToro's models for TinySeed, that was a really, really proud and exciting moment. 
and it's been very cool to see, I'm not sure if I mentioned to you, but you know, four or five other companies, not funds, but, but individual startups have also used SparkToro's model to raise money themselves and use those open source documents. So I certainly encourage anyone who wants to, to, to take a look. They'll, it'll save you, if you decide you want to use it, it can save you a whole bunch of lawyer fees and time to check those out as well. Yeah, that's really cool. So let's talk a little bit about SparkToro and about like growth today. You know, you, you launched over the past year, about 12, 15 months. Has it been that long? I like, like the pandemic makes everything feel twice as, <laughs> twice as long to me. We are only in month nine post-launch. Okay. And so the initial, you, you want to tell folks what SparkToro is and kind of where the idea for it came from. And then we'll talk a little bit about, you know, I'll ask you, so they have an idea of where you are in, in terms of revenue, headcount, whatever you want to let people know. And then we'll talk about growth levers and that kind of stuff. I know people know you as someone who has, has grown companies on social media and SEO and, and a lot of other stuff. So I think there's, there'll be some good stuff we can dig into. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So long story short, SparkToro is a tool that anyone can try for free that helps you instantly discover what your audience reads, watches, listens to, and follows. So if you are starting a startup and you're selling some fancy new landscaping management software to landscapers in Canada, you can go type in, you know, my audience has the word landscaper in their bio and are located in Canada. Tell me all about them. And SparkToro will say, oh, okay, well, we have, you know, the profiles, public profiles of 2,200 landscapers in Canada. And here's what they collectively read, you know, which websites they visit. Here's podcasts they listen to. Here's YouTube channels they subscribe to. Here's people they follow on various social networks um, and accounts. Here's words and phrases that they use in their bios. Here's hashtags that are popular with them. And then you can go do smart marketing of all kinds. You could figure out content strategies from the words and phrases that they're talking about in the last few months. You could figure out hashtags that you want to run Instagram ads against. You could look at the social profiles and reach out and do some influencer marketing. You could go pitch those podcasts to be a guest on them or to sponsor them. Whatever kind of marketing you want to do, we're very agnostic to that. What we want to provide is data about that audience so that you can know them better and go do more thoughtful kinds of marketing of all types to, to reach them. Yeah, and I'll give folks an example. I'm sure you have a, you know, you just gave a pretty good example of, of how someone might use it. But when we were recently trying to promote the State of Independence SaaS survey back a couple months ago, I went in and typed, you know, who on Twitter is talking about SaaS or using hashtag SaaS or I, I don't, you know, it's just kind of searching around around stuff. And the big win for me was not finding people I hadn't heard of. The big win for me was finding people I was like, I know that guy. I know that that you know that that person with that big following and I forgot that they would a be probably be happy to tweet it be a supporter of the state of independence ass. And it was like a, a memory jogger. I did a little bit of cold outreach, but I mostly focused it on just kind of, you know, relationships that I already had. And it, it definitely yielded a few tweets out of that. Yeah, I, I've had um, similar success. So, you know, podcast marketing has been one of the big things that we're doing slightly meta having this conversation on a podcast. But, you know, I mentioned to you, Rob, that one of the ways that SparkToro has reached a lot of its audience and, and customers and potential customers and, and just free users, right, is essentially I go on a lot of podcasts and talk about, you know, all sorts of things related to marketing or advertising or startup growth or funding or whatever. And those listeners often turn into people who are like, yeah, you know what, let me try searching for, you know, follows my social account on SparkToro and let's see what the tool can tell me about my audience. And that has been a great growth lever for us. And so one of the ways that I have been using SparkToro is literally to find podcasts that are connected to the worlds of people that I know. And then I'll just reach out to somebody and be like, hey, Marie, I saw you were on this podcast. Do you know the host? Could you connect me? Ta-da, right? <laughs> Just easy peasy lemon squeezy. And, and those types of relationships, you know, uh, whatever, a warm intro, warm outreach to someone you know who knows a host. Even in the market research world, I knew very few people because that universe is sort of its own different thing. But I... I literally just started following some of those people on LinkedIn and Twitter and then commenting and engaging with them on those platforms. And no surprise, like after a couple of, in one case, weeks and another case, months, you know, we had a couple of conversations that were productive and interesting and that turned into, hey, let you want to come on my podcast? Yeah, that's great. And 
So at this point, you know, you're, you're nine months out of the gate. I know you had a very large launch list of interested folks who, who wanted to use SparkToro. I know you started launching it right as COVID started to, you know, impact the U.S. and impact a lot of your buying audience. Talk us through, you know, what you did there and, and how you feel the launch went overall. We basically started our soft launch in February of 2020, which was exactly when Seattle was getting the first cases of COVID. We're, Casey and I, my co-founder and I, are located in Seattle. So we were just starting to feel the effects. We had, we'd gone into quarantine very early, just kind of hoping, foolishly hoping that like, oh, okay, well, if we all stay home for a few weeks, you know, it'll probably, it'll be fine. <laughs> nope. The reality was that as we started to send those first early access emails at the end of February and then into March, Casey and I were seeing two things happen. One, very rapidly, like the difference between the end of February and the middle of March in terms of sign up and conversion rate from the early access email list, which of course, you know, this is just a, a big group of people. It's not like the first group of people we emailed was substantively different from the next group of people. But as we were sending out a few thousand of these every week, because we wanted to slow roll it, we were seeing those conversion rates falling, the you know sign-up rates falling. I think I, I emailed our investors and was like, oh my God, I think you made a great investment because look at these you know, sign-up rates from, remember you know, from week <laughs> one and two. And then week three fell, week four fell a lot worse. And in addition to the, the rates falling, right, people just being you know, not in a headspace to try a new marketing tool, which makes sense. The other thing that happened is a bunch of our emails started bouncing. I think at the height, almost 17 or 18% were bouncing. And it was not a, this email address doesn't exist anymore. It was so-and-so doesn't work here anymore, right? So just incredible amounts of layoffs. I, I think we've forgotten because in many cases, the like, you know, whatever you want to call it, the white collar economy or the information economy has recovered quite substantially since then. But in March and April of 2020, like layoffs were huge. Every marketing agency was just cutting people left and right because primarily, you know, they, their clients were cutting all their contracts because everybody was panicking about what was going to happen to the world economy. Tragically, late stage capitalism meant that the economy kept going relatively well. It was just the death count <laughs> that was unlimited. So, you know, the situation for us when we launched in April, we basically made the decision. We were like, okay, let's make our free plan much more aggressively generous. So we increased the number of free searches people could run and, you know, and how that the mechanics of that worked and what we were going to show. And we decided to launch because we basically couldn't wait to start getting revenue. We had hoped to launch in January. When it slid to February, that was okay. When March was, you know, COVID is everything, we, we put it on pause. And in April, we just decided, hey, we got to get out there. And that launch went okay. You know, if you look at the first few months after that, our conversion rates were low, but acceptable. You know, we grew fairly quickly to about 20K in recurring revenue per month, which is, which is not bad. But it was really not until September when we did a when we did a pricing change and some conversion focus change that things turned around for us. Not turned around, but accelerated even faster. We we worked with an agency called Conversion Rate Experts, and over the summer they gave us you know a ton of feedback and ideas and things to test. We ran a big survey with our both our first you know, 100 or so customers and a bunch of our free users, ask them what they were looking for, you know, what their experiences were, what made them convert and not, all that kind of stuff. And from those questions, redesigned our homepage, redesigned our product page, did some videos, did some educational content, did an email onboarding series, the usual conversion stuff, and then launched a new pricing plan. And conversion rate almost tripled. That is really what you know sent us. September, October, November, December were really good months for us, and um, January is looking pretty good too. So yeah, we we became profitable, got to break even at the end of September, which was great. Yeah, that is great. Wow, tripled. That's insane. <laughs> we had a very low conversion rate. <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. But that's that's great. Do you think there's any 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 one or two things you ascribe that that tripling to, or was it all the things you just mentioned? Because you meant you know you mentioned five, six, seven things you did. I, I am not sure whether it was 
one or two things that we changed or the whole package. I think, unfortunately, because we didn't A-B test it, we just don't have enough traffic to be able to do that in any reasonable time frame. We can't know, right? We made all these changes at once. Obviously, some of them worked. If I had to take a guess, I would say changing the pricing was one of the most effective. Changing the homepage copy and sort of sequence of signing up was another. Uh, the new description and kind of positioning that the copy takes, I think, makes it more obvious what we're doing and makes the value more obvious. I also think that we had some good success with changing up how the app shows, like what once you perform a search, it shows results in a certain way. And the new version of that seemed to be more effective, just like the layout and positioning of where things are, of where the data that's returned is. I think those are the most impactful changes, but it's hard to say for certain, right? Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, I often tell early stage founders who may want to split test because they've heard it's the best thing to do. It's real premature optimization when you're that early and things are just flying all over the place. You just kind of have to take your best guess, do your best and see what you can, see what you can change across the board, you know? Yeah, I think A-B testing and, and conversion rate testing in general is great when you have between tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands or more visitors to a page and and enough of them are converting that you can basically test in 12 to 36 hours. Anything under that and the testing itself will get in the way of you making real improvements. And I saw that I saw that at Moz all the time. Like we were getting hundreds of thousands of visitors. In, in fact, we were getting millions of visitors a month. We were rolling out these changes. The tests would run for 90 or 100 days and it would come back and be eh, pretty even. Was there one clear winner? Not sure. This is how quarter after quarter was wasted. Yeah, I very much regret getting into a testing focused mindset at that company instead of an innovation focused mindset. I think I think we prematurely did that. And Moz was many, many times bigger than SparkToro. Well, yeah. And, and can you give us an idea if someone's wondering the size of SparkToro? I don't know what you've been public about, but you know whether it's revenue or user count or I know your team is very small, but just so people have an idea of what you're working, it's not, you know, it's not as not nearly as big as Moz. Oh, gosh, no. Uh, so let's see. SparkToro did, um, I'm not sure what our revenue total for last year is going to be exactly. But uh, yeah, we basically, we are profitable at right around $40,000 a month. And we we hit that in, like I said, the end of September of last year. And we've been growing a little bit ever since. We're, you know, we're, we're still small, so growth is relatively easier. But in terms of users, we've got about 30,000 free users uh, a little over 500 paid subscribers. We have a very high churn rate for B2B SaaS, which is not surprising because our tool is intentionally designed to be a, a research tool that many, many companies probably only need to use once every six to 12 months. And we're pretty comfortable with that. We don't need people to be subscribers all of those months. And we've had I think we've had 15 people out of the 500. We've had 15 people who in our first nine months have resubscribed once uh, once or more. So, you know, we, we expect that we're going to have relatively high churn and people will come back to us in the future when they need that data and research again. And then there's a lot of like agencies and in-house content marketing teams that do that work all the time. And so they, they tend to stay subscribers for longer. About 30% of our customers are on annual plans, which is fairly successful, we think. Uh, maybe it's 27%, something like that. I do recommend, we did the, you know, whatever it is, the 30% discount if you buy annually, and a lot of people have taken us up on that. We also default to annual on the pricing page, which, again, has been helpful for those of you who are in B2B SaaS, right? These are little tactical things that might be of value. And the team is just Casey and I. So it's still just us two founders, probably will be for about the next year. Maybe after that, we'll, we'll grow the team a little bit. But we do use contractors and agencies heavily. I mentioned we used a conversion rate optimization agency. We used uh, multiple designers and, and visual artists. We've used some contractor for UX. We used a contractor for some data scrubbing. We used an agency for analysis of our beta cohort and our launch preparations. 
and user testing. We have a <laughs> sizable number of people who contribute in all sorts of ways, but they are all contractors and agencies, which I love. What do you love about it? I love the, the incentive model. No offense to full-time employees, right? But frankly, once you are on a team, your incentives are basically to sort of get along well with the team and, and work well with the managers and, and those sorts of things. Whereas an agency is pretty exclusively performance-based, right? It's, it's kind of like, hey, if I hire you, this is especially true for like marketing-focused agencies, right? You hire a marketing agency, they optimize your whatever ad spend and conversion rate and da 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 da. If they do a great job and they keep doing a great job, you're going to keep them on. And if they don't, you're going to find a new agency or let them go. An in-house marketing team, I love them. I've worked with them. I, I thought I had phenomenal people at Moz when I was there, but eh, the incentive model is very different. You are much, much less likely to fire a full-time person off of your team if the metrics aren't going the right way. And you're much more likely to coach them and work with them and yada, yada. And it could very well be that, hey, you know what? Other things in the company need to change. The product needs to change or the market needs to change before these things can really be affected. And so what would really be ideal is take six months off and then come back. That's what, that's what agencies and consultants are perfect for. Right. I love that approach. I mean, that's that's what I did as a bootstrapper as well, right? Is that you just often don't have the budget to hire someone full time. And I'm imagining in your situation, you raised that small early round of funding for SparkToro. You have no full time employees and now at this point doing 40K a month. Did you need the initial funding? Did you need it? I guess is really the question. Like, do, do you have any regrets about raising it? Or do you feel like, no, that was a great cushion for you guys to go full time? You know, what's your thinking looking back now? Yeah, yeah. So I'm extremely glad we raised it. I don't think we could have gotten the company off the ground without it, very frankly, just because so SparkToro is built on a large, you know, 75-ish million profiles of public social and web data that involves, you know, crawling billions of data points in order to build that, test it, get the design and UX and build the brand and do the marketing, all those kinds of things really required 18 months. I, I think, I don't think we could have launched much sooner, even if we had gone, you know, full speed ahead, knowing everything that we know now, we, we were extremely efficient in our process. And that basically almost two years of being able to pay ourselves and all of the costs and expenses of, you know, spinning up all our instances and doing all of our crawling and aggregation and et cetera, et cetera, that would not have been possible without the investments round. So I'm very, very glad we did it. I don't have any regrets. I'm glad I didn't try and self-fund it with like, you know, the whatever $400,000 in savings that Geraldine and I have. I think that would have been a poor decision as well. <laughs> very, very risky. So yeah, no, no regrets at all. That's great to hear as, as an investor as well, <laughs> to, to know that, uh, I think, you know, that's a, the fear of a lot of bootstrappers is a, will it be an arduous process to raise it? And B, then do you have a bunch of bosses? You have a bunch of people busting your chops to say, grow faster or give it, it's the opposite, huh? If you find the right investors. Oh yeah. I mean, the beautiful thing is, you know what I've sent, I mean, you've been on the mail list, right? So what, four investor updates total since, since we launched maybe five since funding and, you know, every time I do, people reply with helpful things. So, you know, we had some whatever biz dev type of conversations and someone on our in our investor group is, you know, worked at Microsoft and now Amazon in, in those biz dev type of roles and was like, oh, hey, me and my partners will, you know, we're happy to have a call with you and like walk you through some of this stuff and give you things to think about. And that was, that was super helpful. Like, you know, 45 minute phone call with Casey and I and oh, man just great to get that level of experience in, in a region that we just didn't have a lot of experience in. Same story. I think, Rob, you made some of the suggestions around our, specifically our pricing page. And that was incredibly helpful, right? And we're talking about like, I don't know, five minutes of work on your end and maybe a couple of hours of work on our end to make those improvements. Huge. So, I mean, what I love about having individual investors whose mentality is essentially that they want to emotionally, personally, and fiscally support you. Like they want to see you do well and be happy and have a successful business and 
do whatever they can reasonably in a small amount of time to help you out with that. Amazing. That's just a beautiful thing. And, you know, is it cool to reward them for that by building a company that's profitable and hopefully shares that profit? I think that's a great idea. This model that we have, this Barktoral model, is very investor-friendly and entrepreneur-friendly as long as you don't mind two things. One, you don't mind the fact that instead of the goal being be a unicorn or die trying, the goal is get to profitability and then see what the business might become. And the other one that you have to not mind is paying taxes. And unfortunately, <laughs> for some investors, that's a no-go. But for the 36 folks, yourself included, who invested in SparkToro, that model worked out really well. Right. And that you're referring to being an LLC, which is a pass-through entity. And venture capitalists want C-Corps, where the, all the money stays in until there's an exit. In essence, you know, you don't hear venture-funded companies pulling profits out ever. Right. Well, so the, the big difference isn't necessarily the structure, although that is part of the kind of technical details. The, the big difference is paying capital gains all at once in one big transaction at the end of the company versus paying ordinary income taxes as you get paid back and then make profits from the company's dividends and the company's sale. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's a much better way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And and for some people, they're basic, you know, they look at the whatever ordinary income tax rates, which they might be in tax brackets from the high 20s to the high 30s, and they go, that's unacceptable. I want my I think capital gains is 18% or something. Yeah, it's 15 on the low end. And then if it's over like a lot, then it's 18, yeah. Yeah, so it's one of those like, look, if giving the government 12 to 20% of your money is unacceptable to you, first of all, I don't think you're a very good civic person, <laughs> right? Like, and, and second, I don't want you on my balance sheet anyway. <laughs> so it's a good, you know, it's a good sort of alignment of um, both economic interests and also gets the right kinds of investors that, that we want. Right. Nice filtering mechanism. Yeah. I had, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's an interesting point. One of the earlier angel investments I made was, I'm thinking the check was probably 20, just between 20 and 25,000. And it's a similar structure. They're an LLC and they said, we're just going to pull dividends out. We kind of want to run this for a really long time. And I believe that was maybe six years ago that I wrote that check. And I got my first um, dividend check like this month. And it, it was for, I don't know, it was like 5,000 bucks. And I remember, I'm thinking, huh, I, I still own, you know, it's not like they're buying out my shares. Like I still own that part of the company. And so the, the plan is, is to pay us back many times our investment over the course of however, you know, however many years they're on the business. So it's pretty, uh, it's logical. It's just how normal businesses are run. We, we call them bootstrap businesses because they have to, <laughs> the norm in our space is venture backed, which doesn't do that. Well, so I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's this really fascinating thing where I, I don't think entrepreneurs sort of grok how much the changes wrought by essentially mostly the Reagan administration and, and, and kind of the Republican Party domination of, of U.S. finances, you know, economic models around taxes changed how entrepreneurship worked, right? For like the first 70 years of the 20th century in the United States and most of the Western world, the idea was build profitable, long-lasting companies that pay dividends. That's how everybody makes money. Right. And so the focus was on sustainability and like you want companies that can last for a long time. And this is why you had sort of like the model that our parents had in, in the white collar world, at least. I, I don't know what, you know what your background is, but my dad worked as an engineer at Boeing. Right. He was basically hired out of college and worked there for 30 years and then retired and got his pension. And, you know, that's kind of weird to us today. Maybe it was more than that. Maybe it was 40 years. But, like, that's super weird to us. But you can see why that model existed, which was essentially that the incentives at the top, right, at the, from an economic standpoint, were survive as long as you possibly can, be as profitable, be a good profitable company, but don't focus on growth at all costs and growth rate over everything else. And then... You know, when tax structures and finances and, and the Wall Street world sort of upended all of that, mostly in the 80s, everything shifted, right? Everything around entrepreneurship shifted. You get the venture capital environment of the late 90s and early 2000s, and that's, and that's still with us today. And so switching up, because I want to I get some growth tactics in for folks before we wrap up, 
I'm wondering what growth levers you're seeing either working in SparkToro or what you're seeing today, because I know as a basically a lifelong marketer that you have to have your pulse on, you know, on this ever, kind of ever-changing landscape. So what, what, maybe a couple things you could talk about for B2B SaaS founders to think about. So I think over the last 20 years, probably one of the best areas that you could put your effort and energy into was some combination of content marketing and SEO, right? And that worked really, really well. It worked for me at Moz. It worked for a ton of B2B SaaS founders and companies. Worked so well because there was not a tremendous amount of competition um, in a lot of these niches around you know, search engine optimization and ranking organically. Google was pretty good about three things. One, giving you lots of data about the people who visited you, you know, for up until what, 2015 or 16, they, they were sending you the keywords that people searched for when they when they clicked on your result listing. The organic results were almost always very high in the results. So if you were, you know, number one, two, three, you're getting a significant portion of the click-through rate. Content itself helped build links and reputation and, you know, got spread around. The social networks were very friendly to content marketing. You know, you, you put up content on your Facebook page or Twitter page or LinkedIn page, whatever, and you, you could get significant amounts of clicks. The last five years, all of those have trended in the opposite direction, right? So LinkedIn, if you post a, a piece of, you know, whatever, an update to LinkedIn on your profile and it's 2015, and it has a link in it, LinkedIn will show it to lots of people. Today, you post that same thing with a link in it, LinkedIn will, will literally show it to fewer people because they don't want, right? The algorithm does not want people leaving LinkedIn. They want people staying there. Same thing's true with Twitter. Same thing's true with Facebook. You know, Facebook, we were all complaining bitterly, you know, five years ago, seven years ago about like, oh man, the average impression rate for visitors to your Facebook page was, you know, falling from 10%, 11% to like 3 or 4%. And people were just up in arms. All these small businesses were upset. Today, the average, average impression rate for a, an organic update on Facebook is 0.09%. Wow. <laughs> so, Unreal. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just ludicrous, right? We, we basically all know how it works now that you, you can't get a lot of organic reach. It's not impossible, but maybe only the top 1% or 10th of a percent is, is really getting traffic from these places. And in Google, a similar thing is happening. It's not as bad. SEO still sends a ton of traffic. You can still get click-through rate, but Google's putting more and more ads above the fold. They're putting more and more instant answers above the fold, more and more featured snippets that try and answer the query without sending any traffic. Uh, they're not providing the keywords anymore. Yada, yada. So those trends have combined to make me a little more skeptical of relying on any of those outlets and, and much more passionate about building an audience on my own site as much as I can. And so essentially, I use the SparkToro blog and people subscribing to that and email, email newsletters, people trying the product for free and signing up with their email and then getting on our product list, you know, product update list. All of my social networking activity is essentially to build up what I call engagement streaks. So, you know, essentially have people engage multiple times with me on Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram, and then see my content in there. And every fourth or fifth post, there's a link that hopefully, you know, gets seen by a bunch of people before the algorithm kind of drags down its visibility. You know, that's a lot of how I'm playing the growth game these days, centering everything on the website and email. Yeah, and that's I've either heard it called the hub and spoke model or I started at some point calling it the hub and spoke model. I don't know if I came up with it, but I remember saying, thinking at one point like, but this was, let's say, in the late 2000s, you know, even before 2010, where Twitter and Facebook and whatever other dig.com and other so kind of social news and all that was coming around, Reddit. And I remember wondering like, should I stop blogging? Because I was doing a bunch of blogging at the time. And I finally realized, oh no, the blog, the blog articles are the the meat. That's the the hub. And all these other things are are amplification. And this is, sounds obvious in retrospect. I mean, this is 12, 13 years ago as my little developer mind was still trying to grok marketing and really understand what's going on. But it sounds like that that's a lot of what you're saying. Because I know you're still you're still on Twitter with a huge following. You're you're on LinkedIn with a you know big following and um, all these other you know Instagram and, and the other things. But but you are using 
the Spark Torah blog and an email list, which is something so many people, I think there's mixed emotions about it. I know some developers don't like email because they say, oh, it feels like a spammy thing. But you'll see that any successful, especially B2B SaaS business is, is utilizing email pretty elegantly and pretty well in a way that's not obnoxious. And that's the, really the one medium, I guess that and like SMS, if you had a list of phone numbers that people opted into, those are the like the only two social media agnostic ways to, to to interact with your audience to where you can't just accidentally, oops, I got banned on YouTube for something that, you know, uh, accidentally, right? I've never had that happen, but that happens all the time. It does. And then it's this black box and you're like trying to get reinstated and you don't realize that your son in the background, This I heard this on a, a tech podcast where like the son in the background started playing a song and it was copyrighted and something bad, you know, whatever. It, it's just these, these weird things he eventually gets reinstated. But in the meantime, it's like, you can't communicate with your people. Because you don't own the channel, right? And, and email is, is the channel that we can own. I am always surprised when I see these like folks who dedicate so many hours of their life to becoming influencers, but then they're exclusively bound to the channel where they've built up their, their influence, right? Whether that's TikTok or Instagram or YouTube or what have you, and they don't have a presence elsewhere. If the algorithm decides that their stuff isn't that interesting anymore and so they don't get shown to people or if they get blocked or banned or temporarily can't access it or whatever it is, their audience is gone, right? Their revenue stream is gone. That is, that is madness to me. Look, if you're a TikTok influencer, turn those videos into a library that live on a website, right? Promote that. Even if you're only getting, you know, you might complain like, oh, but that lowers my reach and like, you know, lowers my reach by 80% or 90%. I'd still take it. I'd still take it because I can own that channel long term. And I think unfortunately, a lot of these folks are going to find that the same thing that happened with Facebook seven years ago, six years ago, where that engagement rate falls from 11% to 0.09%, that will happen. That will happen to you. Yeah, it seems to be the inevitable pattern with social media, right? Yeah, it's the model, right? Like they, as more and more creators come onto the scene and as TikTok attempts to better monetize its audience and better engage them, there will be less and less of that organic visibility possible, no matter who we're talking about, right? Instagram is the highest of the organic engagement channels today, or organic social networks, and I think it's, it's hovering on average around 1.9%. I wouldn't expect that to last five years. Rand Fishkin, thank you so much for joining me today. Rob, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You are at Randfish on Twitter and sparktoro.com if folks want to check out your blog and see what you're, uh, see what you're building. Thanks again. Yeah, that's right. Thanks for having me, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks again to Rand for coming on Startups for the Rest of Us. And thank you for listening. It's always great to be in your earbuds. If we're not connected on Twitter, let's do it. I'm at Rob Walling. Would love to connect with you there. And I'll be back with another episode in your earbuds next Tuesday morning.